Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. When things do not go according to our plans and the losses keep mounting up, it's only a short step from walking away from God and also all the caring friends who are willing to persevere with us and our suffering. It is possible to get to that place of giving up a perspective that buys into the belief that things won't change to a favorable outcome, and so I'm just going to walk away from it all. It's a tension between humans and the divine when God does not act as we think that He should. And though we know how this tug-of-war is going to end, especially if we walk away from God, but we should know how it's going to end if we persevere with God. It's going to end very well. But it doesn't alter the, t- the tension. The temptation is to quit. Hello, everybody. This is Rick Thomas. I'm glad that you are here. Lifeovercoffee.com. That is our coffee shop. If you haven't visited our coffee shop, why not? There's 100,000 people that just came last month, and I would love for you to, to join us in our coffee shop and to benefit from the resources that we have. I want to talk about this idea, how can I trust God when He does not act the way that I think? Uh, This is a common question, whether stated that way or some other way. It's the same thing. Uh, We want God to act a certain way as we look at our life. Our life is not unfolding the way that we had hoped. The plans that we have made are not coming to fruition in the way that we anticipated them to. And for those of us within the Christianity, have a Christian worldview, have a significant God awareness, we expect God to come through for us. We can be, we can be that centered on our life and how we think things should be. And so when those things do not come to fruition the way that we had hoped, we can experience this angst of the soul, and we could ask the question as blatantly as this, how can I trust God when He does not act the way that I think that He should? And so I want to break that down for us just for a few minutes, and I trust it will be beneficial for you. We're all aware of our mortality. I mean, everybody dies. That's a morbid way of starting a, a discussion like this. But at some point in our future, we're going to lose everything in our lives. The things that we value and those things that we would not miss if they vanished today. Death is undefeated, and we're marching toward that inevitable end. Except for Christ, we will gain nothing that we will not lose at some point in our future. And so this stark reality, it does not have to be spiritually debilitating from a Christian worldview. And though it is a dark way to introduce this idea, it may do some of us some good to re-enter into reality, particularly those who hold too tightly to what they cannot control. The central question to interact with is how are we to respond to the slow, incremental death of all things? When Paul pondered these things, he said this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That is in Philippians chapter 3, verse number 8. What kind of death is currently happening in your life? What cherished thing is slipping through your grip? What losses are you accumulating? Sin is a tsunami that eventually runs over everything. Because of the law of cause and effect, there is no escaping the cause, Adam. Adam sinned against the ruler of the universe. Effect, because of his offense, death entered into our domain. I'm talking about the deteriorating effect of death and its finality that comes into our lives. Marriages that began well slowly die as they drift from the rejuvenating power of the gospel. Families split apart because of sin. Relationships break down of a lack of gospel intentionality. Death has many shades from which nobody escapes. I'm talking about living in reality. I don't think that people really live in reality. We live in some kind of an illusion. How do we respond when that which once was is no longer ours? The questions that I'm asking are the ultimate, unavoidable, inevitable questions that force us to look into the mirror and to examine our face authenticity. When we lose all things, as Paul was talking about, we want to make sure that we have Christ. I mean, why lose something and walk away from God too? How do you want to suffer, with God or without Him? The question is not, do you want to suffer? We are going to suffer, and we want to do it with God. Now, as I ask these questions, I'm not suggesting that you linger in such a morbid meditative state for an extended period, but it is vital to consider just for a moment what you value, the limitations of its pleasure, and the ultimate prize that we have in Christ. In Christ, that is an eschatological reality that transcends sublunary lovers. Our cultural counterparts, a few friends that you may have also in the culture, and possibly even a few Christians too, go to great lengths to shed reality, supplanting it with temporal pursuits that kick the can of inevitableness down the road. Mature Christians weigh the results of losses and gains like Paul while never letting the plus and the minuses obscure the transcendent pleasure found in Christ alone. Now, if you're game, I want to explore more along these lines. And so if you are game, let's continue, and let's examine together looking at our old friend Job, who came up against the ultimate immovable force, that would not bend to his pleas, not bend to his manipulations to keep the status quo. 
Sometimes we can want something so badly that we unwittingly embark on a process of blinding ourselves to how much power that thing has over us. It's a blind spot, something that was happening to Job. And so it would be essential to interject here that, that Job was not your average lover of God. He did not show up for church on Sunday morning and and live as though he lived how he wished to live during the week. No, God was his worldview. God was his lifestyle. And that is a warning to me. There may be a few other lesser mortals who might assume they will persevere better than he did as the losses mount. And so after you juxtapose his legitimate goodness, he was a good man with how blind that he became, uh, that should be sobering for all of us. And we should be able to see the power that sin can have, that it can captivate our minds. The incredibly righteous Job was swirling down the drain of life, grabbing at the air while his friends were giving him bad advice. And after 37 chapters of fruitless groping at the darkness with his counselors, Job had wholly given in to the justification of his actions and his position, even blaming God for why things were so awful. Excuse me. And that's why I want you to think about how we can do that too, because most of us are not as righteous as our old friend Job. So, and I, I don't know if you've ever accused God in such a way. I have, and I'm not recommending that. I'm just being honest. Sometimes we can want something so much that we blame God for not giving it to us. Now, the implied reasoning is that God is not acting as we believe that he should act. And like Job, our blame game is is not always evident to us. I don't think Job was totally aware of what he was doing. I was not completely cognizant of blaming God for not giving me the life that I had anticipated. How are we to think about a God when he does not act the way that we think? Well, when the hayloft of our minds is on fire, the smoke blinds common sense. I've done this more than once while caught in unmitigated suffering, which is why Job is such a poignant reminder of our propensities. For the longest time with Job, it seemed like a battle between friends who disputed theological ideas. Job's friends were making some good points. They had some poor observations, too. And Job became sinfully angry. Whenever our reaction to disappointment is sinful anger, rest assured that something more sinister is in play in our hearts. Poorly chosen reactions to our fears indicate that something is amiss with our experience with the Lord. People accuse Jesus of many things that were not true, but he never resorted to sinful anger. The man or woman submitted to the practical gospel of Christ has nothing to fear, nothing to protect, nothing to hide. Christ embodies this truth perfectly. 
Job does not. And I, I'm hesitant to say that because I love Job so much, but he is a mirror of me and possibly you. Christ understood that his father was good. And if there were something that he was not getting, his theological senses informed him that God had something better in mind. Now, that is a bumper sticker that you really want to just emblazon upon your mind that if God is not giving you something that you want, your theological senses must inform you that he has something better in mind. Job became sinful because there was something more meaningful to him than God's sovereign and protective care. It didn't matter what God had in mind. I want what I want. Even if God doesn't give it to me, then I'll just go get it some other way. No, the Lord dug this theological cancer out of Job once Job wrapped up the final round of questions with his friends. And so when his buddies were all over, it's 37 chapters now, and we're not making any progress, and it's just not going anywhere. And so the Lord asked this, Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? That's Job chapter 40, verse number 8. Job's mind had become so twisted that he was willing to blame God because he did not like his new reality. And so his reaction informs us. I I hope that it informs you too. If our reaction to our reality is sinful, is godless, then we have a problem with reality. And that's why I spent a little bit of time talking about we need to re-index back into reality and not live in this self-delusion that everything should happen according to our plans and expectations. When dealing with an angry person and wanting to know what drives him, all you have to do is just open the door of his heart, the core of his being, and where our resident problems find their genesis. And so as we think about Job, who was angry at God, we need to address what was going on in his heart. And so as we open that door, we will find root cause because a person's heart will tell you everything you need to know about them so that you can help them. Job was angry about what happened to him, but his anger was not the core issue. His anger was an outward manifestation that pointed toward an inward reality in his heart. Job's main problem was that he was afraid. Anger coming out on the outside points to fear on the inside. He was scared of losing what meant most to him. And you understand this. I most certainly do. He had already lost many cherished things, family, wealth, health. But everything was not lost. He would fight to the bitter end to keep from losing the final paltry remnants of his life. And that final thing was his rightness. I am right and you are wrong. God, this is your fault. He was holding on to his righteousness. Everything else was gone. In Job's mind, he did no wrong. He did not deserve his trouble. Now, by the way, that is true. He didn't deserve his trouble. But the fatal flaw is how being good and doing good do not guarantee a trouble-free life. 
You remember the devil's accusation? Does, does Job have an improper view of profit and loss? Does he live the good life by doing everything the right way? Job believed his treatment was unfair because he worked hard to live a righteous life. And though he had lost everything else, he would not give up this one final paltry. This righteousness, the rightness of his position, even if it meant being angry at God. I may have lost all these things, and I may have gone through all this pain, but I am right. I don't deserve this. God, you are wrong. Suffering can shake us so much that we begin to think differently from God, and Job did this. He was losing touch with reality as evidenced by his growing inability to see what he needed to see. His suffering led to anger, which identified fear down deep in his heart, and he doubled down by defending himself as fear mounted in his heart. Well, God waited until the useless discussions and distractions subsided so that he could get to the real issue. Job was afraid of what God might do. Job's friends felt this dilemma, and though some of their points were not altogether wrong, they could not make any headway because Job saw himself as a righteous man who did not deserve these awful things. The righteous victim creates a dilemma for those who want to care for them. Once you put your finger on the fear of what they don't want to lose, they may bite your finger and sever the relationship. This tension has been my biggest dilemma when caring for hurting people. This is a delicate process. It takes a whole lot of compassion, but it takes a lot of courage too. At some point, you must identify their fear and try to help them to understand what is controlling them. They might not have deserved what has happened to them. That's the compassion. But the courage is is going to speak into the self-sabotaging that they are doing to themselves. And if the fear is too deep and their love for what they are losing is too captivating, they will retaliate with anger. They shoot the messenger. A wife once told me, I don't care about Christ and his suffering. I just want my husband to love me. I understand perfectly what she's saying, and I'm sure that you do too. And I actually do not believe she meant her hyperbolic retort the way it sounded to me. I don't care what about God and, or Christ and his suffering, but I understand her point. Her fear of not being loved the way she wanted her husband to love her altered her thoughts about God. And she didn't hold back her anger as I tried to reorient her thinking to a higher plane and a different kind of trust in the Lord, knowing that he had something better for her. Though Job's friends proffered partially poor counsel, the only kind of, it's the only kind of counsel humans can give, Job became arrogant. And he became angry, like this lady friend that I'm describing to you, quite frankly, and he retaliated by spewing self-justifications for his actions. He was not going to give up his righteousness. Job wanted what he wanted, and he would find no consolation in anything else. 
And if anyone challenged his thinking, there would be retribution because Job was not humble. His stubborn refusal is why the Lord stepped into the situation. Job could talk others down. He could put them in their place. His combination of theological knowledge and the gift of argumentation and selfish motivations were formidable. Job was too smart to be assailable. And then there was the Lord. Job ran his mouth just long enough to call down the thunder of God on his self-righteous and angry whining. There is a lesson, lesson here for all loving caregivers. Our job is to water and plant, not to pressure, not to coerce change out of anyone. Repentance is a gift from God. Repentance is a gift that God grants, and our role is to present the Bible's truths the best that we understand them at this point while resting in God to push forward His will. This is something that God has to do. We pray and we expect the Lord to interject Himself into these discipleship situations. And though Job could blow off others with his pedantic verbosity, he would not move God. The Lord made sure of this by stacking the cards against Job. Now, if you want to read all the cards in God's deck, then you could read his counsel in Job 38, 39, 40, and 41. It's quite lengthy. There's a lot of cards in that deck. But when we refuse to listen to the appeals of our friends, there is no other place for the Christian to go but to the court of the Lord. Every worried spouse, parent, friend, they need to find hope in this perspective. God will care for his children. Parents, stop worrying so much. Spouse, I know that you might feel like you're in marriage prison with this person that you have married. God will take care of this. It may take longer. In fact, I think it almost always take longer than we had hoped. It may come after the exhaustion of our arguments like with Job's friends, but it will surely come, and in this we can rest. Job's dilemma brings us to the driving question that I want to present, I have presented to you. How can I trust God? When God does not act as I think he should. That is a humongous question, and we need to deal with it honestly, transparently, faithfully. The problem is that Job was seeing God through the lens of justice rather than wisdom. It's not fair, he was saying. I don't deserve this. This is not just. When we view God through this exclusive lens of justice, we're going to miss wisdom. He was more concerned with the fairness than sovereign wisdom. When this happens, there is a good chance a person will shipwreck his religion, his life, his relationships. Life will never be fair in a fallen world, which is why we need wisdom, not an ideological worldview that sees things through the lens of equity or the retributive principle, I do good and good will happen to me, or when I do wrong, I should expect evil to come. No, we can't view God and life through an exclusive justice 
lens. Wisdom is the ability to look behind what is happening on the surface of our lives and to trust that God is working out his wise and good plans for us, even if it does not align with equity ideals or retributive principles. Job's anticipation of justice obscured his need to understand God and his wisdom. And we're like this too. How quickly can we retaliate with anger when someone hurts or disappoints us because we want justice? The reasoning goes like this. Someone must punish sin, and if he has done wrong, I must give him a piece of my mind. I'm going to act out justice here. Or maybe... She hurt my feelings. She did not give me what I hoped for, and now I will pout until she gives me what I desire. Pouting is anger turned inward, which usually leads to manipulation, which is anger turned outward, the intentional desire to control someone through pouting. It is so easy to play the justice card when things are not going our way while missing the wisdom card which speaks of a loving and sovereign Lord who is always working for our good. Whatever is under your suffering is under the Lord's care. He is in complete charge of our lives. And though the reality of death's shadow is ominous, there is one thing better, God's ability to raise the dead Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Job 41, 11. Suppose you have a God who is wise enough and powerful enough to overlook your anger with him, choosing rather to allow suffering in your life no matter about your protestations. Isn't it also true that you have a God who is wise enough and powerful enough to have reasons for allowing it, even though you are angry with him? You do not live in a gospel-less world. One of the reasons we become so miserable and angry when suffering comes is that we assume we're supposed to understand how God should be working in our lives. The gospel is way more counterintuitive than you ever imagined. Only the Lord the Lord can use sin sinlessly. Look at the cross to remind yourself of this truth. A genuine and loving God will not elevate your wishes to what needs to happen when suffering is the best way to accomplish what needs to happen. Similarly, a wise and courageous and loving friend will not cave to the sufferer but will love their friend, which may mean confronting their foe righteousness, even though they so desperately want it to end. If you believe the Lord should have kept your suffering from you, then you have a small God. If you think your friends should not press into your life to help you work through your disappointments, then you have a small view of friendships. A small view of God and small friendships have this one thing in common. It allows you to be in control. Being out of control, especially when tragedy strikes, is the last thing that we want. We like controlling our world when things are going swimmingly. How much more do we want to be in charge when when life takes a downward turn? 
And once we go down that road, we deceive ourselves and we can deceive our friends. We can keep our fears hidden while justifying our actions with arguments. If we keep our friends and God pushed away from the actual motivations of our hearts, it is rare for a person not to be self-aware of these types of shenanigans. They know what they're doing. We know what we're doing. Making the practice of deception actually premeditated. We're doing this on purpose. And so as you care for this person who is angry because God did not act as they expected, anticipated God to act, you will need the courage to speak past the front that they are putting up, the mask that they are wearing, so that they can hear the truth that they don't want to see. I am unsure how self-aware Job was about his hidden fears of the heart or his angry smokescreen that he was putting out there. It would be an argument from silence to speculate about how dialed in he was to his heart motivations. Though most folks are self-aware of these inner workings of the heart, a few folks can be unaware of how they are self-sabotaging through their thinking. Fear has gripped their hearts to such a degree that they're out of tune with their inner machinations of the soul. Perhaps you're like this because you're unaware of how fear has gripped your heart as you think about your suffering. One of the easiest ways to diagnose how fear has captivated a person's heart is by how they respond to their suffering. That will give you a clue. I mean, that was the test in Job. Will he bless God? Will he curse God when the rain, uh, when, when, the, uh, when it rains down the fire from heaven? That was what Satan was asking. We will either harden or soften our hearts. And so the first reaction, hardening, that is pride. The second reaction to suffering, softening, that is humility. Those are our two choices. Hard, soft, pride, humility. Think of these responses like doors that lead you somewhere. You may not know what is happening to you. You may not know exactly where you are going, but your thoughts about God will become evident when suffering comes into your life by the words that come out of your mouth. The prideful heart will grow cold as the angry soul distance themselves from the Lord, but the humble heart will soften as they warm to the future possibilities that the Lord is working in their lives. Now, both responses, hardening pride, softening humility, both of those responses are acts of faith. They believe that they must respond in a specific way, whether it leads to freedom or whether it leads to suffering. The big question is, how can I trust God when he does not act the way that I think? If you would like to read what I have just shared with you, please look for that title at lifeovercoffee.com. How can I trust God when he does not act the way that I think? If you will do a deep, if you want to do a deeper dive, then I have several CTAs at the end of this several questions, call to actions that you can ask, and you can really wrestle through this. I was listening to my, or reading my friend Judy, uh, one of our students, and also 
uh, one of the people that participates on our private forum for our supporting member community. And she was encouraging a lady on our private forum and saying, hey, you know, you can read this article. And I don't remember which article she was sharing, but telling her that there is questions at the bottom that will help you to flesh this out. And there's also links throughout the article that will take you throughout our coffee shop uh, to where you can just spend days and even weeks studying the topic at hand. And so if this is relevant to you, how can I trust God when he does not act the way that I think? Then go over the lifeovercoffee.com, pull up this article. You can read, watch, or listen to it. And then you can also go through the CTAs at the bottom of the article. And then you can start clicking on these hyperlinks and just keep moving through our coffee shop, reading more and more content that will help you. Suffering is a big deal and it's happening to all of us. Let me wrap up by letting you know that we have a topical course that we have launched on the fear of man. It's a universal problem, a universal condition we're all concerned to varying degrees about what other people think about us. And for some people, those opinions of other people can have a lot of control over us. If you want to break the bondage of fear of man, I would recommend that you take our No More Fear course. It is an all online course. And so you can go to the courses link uh, on our website, No More Fear, and you can get it today and you can start. There is a 30-page workbook. Book. There's 20 videos, 20 audios. There's a lot of other resources there. It is a nice, solid course on the fear of man to help you to break out of that bondage of not being managed by other people. If you know one, if you know somebody like that, uh, please let them know as well, and just take them over to our coffee shop and say, "Hey, I, I think you would benefit from this course." By the way, those of you who do support our community, we have uh, a thread in our forum where. People who are taking that course are talking to each other. And so if you want to jump into that community, you can as a supporting member of our ministry and not only take the course, which anybody can take, whether you're a supporter or not, but if you are a supporter, you can jump in this community and talk with these folks who are taking the course. And I think that would be a huge benefit to have that kind of accountability with folks who are going through the very same thing. No more fear how to break the bondage of being controlled by other people. Thanks so much for listening and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com. 